I'm sitting here in the hallowed halls of the brand new Chicago Tribune building talking with its eminent theater critic of almost two decades, Chris Jones. Chris, my first question for you has to be, can you help me make the case that critics are people too? <laughs> well, we're a disappearing breed now. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. Thanks for subscribing, streaming, or downloading and listening to us on your computer or tablet or phone. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast number 619, Critic Chris Jones. Chris Jones is the chief theater critic and Sunday cultural columnist for the Chicago Tribune, a job he's held in various forms for almost 20 years. He also appears on the CBS2 Weekly News here in Chicago, and as we'll hear, has written a book about American theater called Rise Up that will be published next month. And since we recorded this conversation, it was announced that Chris will now review theater for the New York Daily News, in addition to his regular writing for the Chicago Tribune. Despite this hectic schedule, and in addition to the time he spends actually seeing theater, Chris made time for us to chat about the role of the critic, how criticism has changed over the years, and continuing his answer to my original question, how critics are perceived. So there's a lot of people who think that we're not really people at all, and you know, there are those who will not miss us when we're gone, but we are definitely, uh, I think we're part of the ecosystem. I don't know, we're kind of like vultures maybe, or we clean up the trash, we, we, uh... Well, you put some of the trash in its appropriate context, um, which I think is, which I think is the, an incredibly valuable thing, rather than just a shopping guide, which much, I don't know, is that criticism, or is that just reviewing? How do you make those distinctions? Well, I, I, I think that the the uh, I always say to young critics what you should do is try and is try and say what does it, it it's not so much the question of is the show good as what does the show mean what is the show saying yeah. you know how does it exist in the context that is today yeah. and and how do and how does it relate you know I always say that most great plays are about death the vast majority of plays are about how we are all taken from this planet at a time and place not of our choosing. And that to some degree, or um, by the way, without regard to our deserving. Yeah, right. And so, and so we have to eventually, um, you know, we have to come to terms with that great injustice. And that's really what the theater is about. It's about most plays, as I say, are about human beings trying to deal with that phenomenon. And so I think if you're writing about it as a, as a critic, that is ultimately what you're mostly writing about. Death. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. The, uh, but that, I've never heard a phrase quite that way before. But I think that also explains why we, why people make theater and why people go to theater. I mean, we're, we're exploring this very idea by the, by the fact that just walking into a room with other people to see a performance, we are trying to make sense of 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 what we're doing here now before that other thing happens. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we do, we we're obviously all we're obviously all attracted to these great stories, and that we, you know, that's what. That's why we go to the theater. I, it is a very funny life when you're a critic, because I, I think about my life. I go to the theater most nights of the week. Now, you know, in, in the fall or the spring, I'm probably there six nights a week. Mm. Sort of like an actor. It's an actor's schedule, really. Um, and, but I spend almost my entire life in effectively a make-believe world. 
So I'm yeah. always lost in someone else's story. And a brand new every make-believe world every night. And a brand new make-believe yeah. world every night. And it's a strange way to live your life. And I, <laughs> I actually find, I think I'm probably addicted to it. I think that if I, if I stopped doing it, I would suffer from a sort of withdrawal. And for me, much as I enjoy a good movie or I enjoy a good TV show, there's nothing quite like the live experience. I don't get the same thrill if I'm not with other human beings in the room saying, you know, talking yeah. about what they're talking about. Well, and, 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 and talking of, of community, I think this Chicago community is very, um, I don't, it's very close. It seems to me it's very supportive. Um, and you are as much a part of the theater scene as anyone. You're there. I, it, uh, you and I ran into each other one evening at Union. Is that what it's called? Pizzeria right. in, in, in Evanston. Yeah. And we were with mutual friends, and we all sat down and had dinner. And it happened that you and I had exchanged tweets that afternoon. Right. But you and I had never socialized. And then I literally, at one point in the evening, uh, excused myself to the restroom and Googled you And uh, when we performed at the Royal George just to see, oh, shit, did he like our shows? I can't remember. And thankfully, you did. Um, and you had some very fair criticisms about cl completely Hollywood abridged, uh, uh, criticisms with which I agree. Um, but you were the one who gave us the phrase stellar shtick, which we still use on our, on our posters. Um, um, but I, I say all of that to say... Um, you're part of the community, and I, what has fascinated me about this community and its supportive nature is that, you know, the whole theater doesn't go, oh, shit, here's Chris Jones again, here comes the critic, you know? It, you're, I see you chatting with people, I see you uh, 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 actually friends with artists. Um, is that hard? Is that difficult? Is that typical? Well, I think, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a, I have a variety of very complex relationships. Mm -hmm. um, it is, that's absolutely the case. I think that it's, you know, I do go and I do write reviews and I am preoccupied with being fair. That is to say that frequently the nicest people are not the best artists and sometimes the lousiest people are the best artists. Yeah. And you have to be able to say that. Yeah. Um, now, on the other hand, in the, in the ideal circumstances, the nicest people are also the great artists. But, but there is definitely sometimes, you know, um, there are people who you, you go, wow, uh, I wouldn't want to necessarily cross the street to say hello to them, but what brilliant work they're doing. So yeah. I, 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 do think, I do think that's true. I think critics, you know, most of us who are daily critics, we tend to move on to the next show very quickly. So, you know, it's a Monday night, I might review something, a Shakespeare show, a Chicago Shakespeare. By Tuesday, I'm in another theater in another show. And people like yourself, who obviously, an artist works on a, you know, they're not on a different show every night. They're working on the same project for a long time. They often remember reviews that I have long forgotten, <laughs> and often they'll they will they will intuit patterns in reviews, such as you know you've never liked anything I've ever done, and I will often then sort of say, really, I, I don't re recall that, and and sometimes I'll go back and look and go, oh yeah, I guess I didn't like anything <laughs> they ever did, but it's it's not something because I I really believe that to be a good fair critic. Every night has to be a new night um, because there's always the potential for change is that people, artists, in my experience, artists get better as they age. And so therefore, you can, there, is, there can be someone whose work you've seen for many years who is suddenly at a certain point in their lives 
suddenly decides to be honest in a way they never have been before or revelatory in a way they never have been before and all of a sudden you think wow uh, you know this this greatness emerging so people do change and the, on the converse can happen too people can start out great and then they can end up sort of tired and it can get sort of rote and predictable right. so I really believe in no prejudgments that ideally the lights go down this is my model anyway ideally the lights go down and you're ready to be amazed every time. And one of the things I like about your writing, and and well, and you as a person, you're a critic who appreciates comedy, and I'm and I uh, in my in my business, I found that not all of them do. Um, but I also, I mean, I've now I've now I, I've now been going to opening nights here in Chicago uh, on many occasions where I'll run into you and I'll read your review, and whether I agree with the your take on it or not, it seems to me you always completely accurately describe the show I saw. You and I saw the same show. And then it, you might have liked it more than I did or vice versa, but I, all, I, I that leads me to be able to trust your reporting on the other shows that I haven't seen. And, and I find that incredibly valuable. Well, thank you. I, I, I think one of the dilemmas of the job is a little bit that there are multiple audiences for theater. And, uh, you know, as you well know. So, in other words, sometimes you go to a show I mean, and you might think to yourself, well, this is not necessarily for me, but I can imagine if I am uh, a different demographic from my own, or let's say that if I'm not that interested in the arts, but I, uh, I've been working very, very hard for the last week, mm -hmm. and I just want on a Saturday night to relax and enjoy myself, this is a good entertainment for that. And it is not always easy to sort of decide the distinction between that, in other words, not for everybody, but very competent. Right. You see this issue a lot on Broadway, um, where you know you get some sort of jukebox musical that all the critics sniff at, but that you, you can sit around people in an audience who are just loving every second of it. Right. And so I think sometimes it's not the easiest to sort of reconcile those two things, if that makes sense. You have to have standards. But you also have to recognize that different people want different things from a show on a given night. Yeah, yeah, and you and you talk about Broadway too. I mean, not only are you seeing shows five or six nights a week, but you're not only seeing the Chicago shows. You go to Broadway and cover every major opening there. That's an enormous travel schedule. But um, how does seeing the stuff in New York? contextualize the Chicago stuff, or vice versa. Well, Chicago has a symbiotic relationship with New York, so many, many shows in, on Broadway try out in Chicago. Uh, and I, I've, I've sort of and, uh, always enjoyed that about my job. There's something great about a tryout, are we, um, because I think you can write about something that's not finished, that one of the great joys of writing about tryouts is you can sort of say, you can sort of say, hey, act two needs to lose 20 minutes, and they can actually, if they agree with you, they can actually take out the 20 minutes. Whereas, you know, on opening night on Broadway, it's done, it's mm -hmm. baked, and there's nothing can be done, and you move on, it's a success or a failure. Thumbs up, thumbs down, mm -hmm. move on to the next project. So I've always enjoyed the ability not to always have to do that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's one of the one of the sort of great things. But I think you know Broadway remains this fascinating street where um, lots of great things happen. They haven't they have an access to international celebrities that you don't see that often in Chicago. And I find it calibrates me. You have to sort of know 
um, you have to sort of know what's going on in both places to really do a good job. We have a friend who is a producer, a, a, part of a consortium of investors in shows, and I know, I think he, I think he has a p piece of Legally Blonde, I think he has a piece of Spamalot, and he was telling me, actually, that they love bringing shows to Chicago in large part because of your reviews. He's he, he has said that you're one of the most helpful of the local critics to, or of critics, full stop, to who, who can be helpful in terms of what the show needs, what the script needs. Well, I think at that point, that's it's a fair enough, right? And I actually find that my readers, so I, there's a lot of dedicated readers and theater goers in Chicago who like to see stuff first yeah. and who love to go to a show yeah. and to say, well, that's no good or that needs to change. And I always enjoy the sort of debate I get into them. They, they recognize that we're that sort of tryout city, and they really, they, they just really enjoy the whole thing. And so that's what they, that, that's kind of one of the special things about the beat in Chicago. Plus, of course, this vibrant, ensemble-driven, non-profit theater scene here that we have of our two to three hundred theaters yeah. and who are churning out, yeah. you know. And, and, the, and the other great thing about Chicago that is distinctive, I think, makes it unique, is just the massive preponderance of young artists. So it's entirely possible here to go to a basement storefront uh, and see a kid 21, 22 years old who you just know is destined for greater things. And, and here is where, that's happened to me a number of times where I've seen someone and gone, oh my God, that talent. And frequently, not infrequently certainly, they've gone on to massive careers. You're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Hi, I'm movie critic Bob Mundello. And though click and clack, the car talk guys bust a gasket when they hear it, I'm on National Public Radio. Where can you RSC the RSC? You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and illustrated by the marvelous Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. Our 2018-2019 tour of William Shakespeare's long-lost first play abridged, The Ultimate Christmas Show abridged, and the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged revised continues next week in Saginaw, Michigan, then continues on to 23 more cities in 18 different states, featuring 11 different actors and three different stage managers. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for a specific box office venue and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with Chris Jones, theater critic for the Chicago Tribune and now also the New York Daily News. Here's another thing I hope you can help me with, because I have said on many occasions uh, that I, for my money, Chicago is the American theater city that's most like London. Would you yes. agree? I would agree with, like that. I think Chicago, like London, has a lot of diversity of theater. Like it has, we, we don't have rigorous hierarchies. We, it's possible to see a big show and a very, very small show. We're also very driven here by ensemble. It's always been kind of the, the, the byword of Chicago has always been, you know, that you're not in it for yourself, you're in it for the work. Mm. Um, th th this is sort of the, you know, one of the founding ethoses of Second City, for example, the idea that it's just enough removed from 
glamour and fortune that you can actually concentrate mm -hmm. on the work. And, and I think there's a, lot, there's a lot to do with that. That, that slight isolation has often allowed um, you know, work to get done here that couldn't be done anywhere else. Now, there's a downside in the sense that sometimes I see stuff here that I think is great and it goes nowhere because the right people don't see it yeah. and it doesn't get enough media coverage. And it just, for whatever reason, stuff here sometimes just dies on the vine and you sort of, you go, oh, you know, that's a real shame because mm. that was really, really excellent in yeah. some way. So that's the downside of working in Chicago. You're not as, you know, it's not, you're not gonna have an agent in your theater every night. But the good side is that there's a bit of space to do your work. And as long as you're sort of, I think especially if you're young, um, you can really exploit that to really fail and risk again, as they say, and, and, and then really do great work. And th that, that it, it really matters here. There is, a, I think, a general sense here of critics, audiences, and theater artists that it really is about the work and that people really do want to do good quality work. And that is, that, that is you know, they're not going to make a fortune. No one's going to be world famous that night, but there is a belief in the work. Very important. You're incredibly wise and articulate about all of yeah. this stuff. Did you come to criticism because you were wise and articulate about this stuff, or has this stuff you've discovered over the years? And how did you begin? Well, I, I started. I have a theatre background, and I, you know, I studied. I'm originally British, and I studied drama in the UK university, and I ended up going to grad school in the US in, in theatre too, and I and I directed a few shows and taught for a while, and then I started working for Variety in the 90s, and I covered theatre all across America. And then eventually ended up at the Tribune, where I've been here now for 17, 18 years doing what I do. Um, so I've been a critic for a long, long time, yeah. and I've seen a lot of theater. And I think I am, you know, the dilemma of the, let's say, the mid-career critic, to be charitable of myself, <laughs> the dilemma of the mid-career critic is that you have to, you have to keep fresh enough so that you, ha you don't have that weariness, oh my God, I've s I saw this 20 years ago better, you know, and you can't always be comparing it to the production I saw in 1986 <laughs> at the Steppenwolf when <laughs> Gary Sinise was naked. Or you can't sort of do that. You have, to, you have to be fair to everybody. But at the same time, you know, the more you've seen, the more you know, and, the, and context, I think, is sort of everything. And, and so, you know, I think the job is harder as you get older. The other thing, too, is that you become, my other middle-aged dilemma, I guess, is that you become the establishment more that mm. sometimes I, you know, when people are going after me on Facebook, they'll often sort of describe me as a sort of, this sort of establishment guy, you know, the guy, the sort of mainstream, regular, regular sort of establishment authority figure, gatekeeper or something. Mm -hmm. And I never have seen myself that way. I've always right. just seen myself as a guy sort of trying to find good stuff in tiny little theaters. Yeah. But over time, that changes, people's perceptions of you change. So that's the, uh, yeah. this is what critics worry about when we lay awake at night. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're just a guy, but you have a, you have a, a larger megaphone than other folks. But, yeah. but now with social media, do you feel like that's kind of helped democratize things a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I always tell young critics that people now, people respond immediately now. So if I screw up, <laughs> so let's talk about screwing up. Critics screw up. And by screwing up, I mean you can get something wrong, or you can just be tired. I've done this. You're tired one night, and you don't give a work. It's full and just and fair consideration. Yeah. Maybe you miss some of the intent of the artist. Those are the reviews that I regret the most, where I feel like I've not, 
you know, I feel like I've not taken the time to really get in the soul of the artist and really figure out what the artist was trying to do. That for some reason I've sort of blown it off. And I can think of a handful of those occasions when I'd like to rewrite it, you mm -hmm. know. Um, so, so I think that that is it's really important not to sort of um, not to sort of screw things up. And it's not just a question of getting something wrong. It's just a question of not every review you write is great. And then sometimes you can go to a work and it can move you or touch you in such a way that it just you you just feel that you understand it totally, right. and you can sort of write and write and write and and there can be nothing more glorious the theater you know the theater has its pulse on american life so i always say to write about theater is to write about life and death of course and so you have the ability with in my job really to write about everything all the time i mean in shakespeare as you well know you know you you those plays are about the deepest elements of human consciousness and human suffering and human resilience. And so I try to just write about those. One of the things, uh, other things I think you do so well is you walk that line of making many reviews personal in the sense that you are able to say, I and you don't go, well, I think this or I've had a tough day, but you are able to personalize your review to a degree where you don't to my reading of your work, you, 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 uh, uh, you're not say you're not um, handing down opinions like stone tablets. Like these are facts. These are your opinions, your takeaways, your your attempt to contextualize the work. Is that a thing you're conscious of per, um, personalizing the reviews? That's probably the wrong way to say it. Well, I, I would say that's the fundamental change in criticism over the past thirty mm. years, twenty, thirty years. That I would say, if you look at the previous generation of critics. Um, most of the time they wrote in third person, they were like God on high saying this is the verdict. They rarely wrote about their own lives. Yeah. And I think many of them for, would have seen to do, the reason they didn't is that many of them would have seen that as indulgent, self-serving, inappropriate, uh, and and, that, and, the, and the critics were sort of seen that way. But what's happened now is that people focus much more on who the critic is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what is their gender? What is their race? What is their, how long have they been doing this? What, is, what, what, are their, what are their assumptions? What are their biases? What, are their, what is their place of privilege? So in other words, people are inevitably now focusing on you. And you can't avoid it. So, and you can't pretend it doesn't matter. No, you can't. Yeah. No, it does. Absolutely right. And yeah. it, and it, it's it's true. You are who you are. So I I think at times you do it, it, it. Honesty now dictates, and the readers now want you to sort of talk about yourself more personally. And I and I think we like reading. You know, we we, we see a lot more first person writing in newspapers than there used to be. Uh, and so there's a that that if people just have a taste for that more. Uh, and, I, and I think that has become more appropriate. The, the danger of it, though, is that taken too far, it becomes indulgent. And, and also, you do have to start with the work, not yourself. There's nothing worse than some, you know, pre pretentious twerp of a person saying, you know, well, I, I, as somebody, I, I feel, I feel, I feel, who can only talk about themselves. So I don't, I really don't want to do that because I find it arrogant. But on the other hand, I don't want to obscure who I am. And I believe also that the reviews now, for people to read them in this very crowded world, they have to emotionally engage. Mm -hmm. like Just like a good podcast, right? People, you want to be touched. 
and you want to sort of you, you want to know that the critic is feeling something otherwise the review is dull to read or boring to read so I think in order to be emotionally engaging, you sometimes have to talk about your own life. Like, you know, I, if, I, if I, my father, for example, uh, had got Alzheimer's before he died, if I'm, if I'm reviewing a play about Alzheimer's, which actually I have to sh in a few weeks, <laughs> I will almost certainly talk about that because, yeah. I, you know, that, that, because that would be, uh, it would be a, a lie not to do so. How could it not color your perception? And, That's uh, right. Yeah. That's right. So, so I do believe in that. I do believe in, in acknowledging who you are now, having said that, the other everything for me is sort of a gray area, but I also think that the theater is a craft, and that I do always like to stand for craft. Like, I, I do think that, you know, I was saying a few minutes ago that I think artists often get better as they get older, that I think that there are some people who are just very, very good at this craft, very good at it. Um, and people who've performed, as you well know, many, many times, you learn about an audience after you've done 10,000 performances. Yeah. And so I, do, uh, I don't think this is an, a, one, some great big subjective world where anyone can be great. I think that what we do is, is, is very driven by experience, by artistry, and by accomplishment. And I, and I do think those things also matter. So in addition to writing all those reviews in both Chicago and uh, New York and Broadway, and even Stratford up in Canada, you've actually also written a book I'm not yeah. exactly where you have found the time, but what's it called and when's it coming out? So this is, my book is called Rise Up and it's a look at the American theater at Broadway specifically, beginning with Angels in America. It, it begins with the angel crashing through the ceiling in Angels in America and it ends with the cast of Hamilton addressing Mike Pence in the theater at Hamilton. And it's sort of the story, I like to think of it as the story of how Broadway figured out how to put itself at the center of the American conversation. And I like to think that the book is really, is, is helping people um, understand that ambition is a good thing in the arts. That in other words, the many, many of the, sh I sometimes think many of the shows I review are insufficiently ambitious. The canvas is not broad enough, mm -hmm. the questions are not big enough, the stakes are not high enough. And so I wanted to write a book about um, ambition, really, and, and to sort of bookend it with these two, which I would argue are the single most ambitious shows of the, of the modern era, which would be Angels in America and then some 25 years later, Hamilton, and how everything sort of uh, uh, everything sort of came together to reward artists who, you know, were the most courageous. And so that's what it's about. That's what it's about. It's called Rise Up. It's uh, out in November from with you in Bloomsburg. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Chris Jones's book, Rise Up, Broadway and American Society from Angels in America to Hamilton, will be published on November 18th, 2018, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon. Then send us your thoughts on the art of criticism to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSC Podcast or on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener. Thanks as always to sufficiently ambitious Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout out this week goes to Alice Ravenwood. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Bob Mondello from National Public Radio, another person who makes a compelling case for sparing critics come the revolution. 
And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 619 1587ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. This has been a fabulous conversation, and my only regret is that we didn't do it in a pub. All right, next time, my friend, next time. (laughs) This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.